Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Brisbane podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. In a world that is dominated by narratives of fear, anxiety, and worry, what does it mean that joy is not dependent on outward circumstances, but on the inner state of one's heart? You've joined us in our series, Philippians, where we are exploring what Paul meant when he wrote to have joy in everything and the importance of living in unity among believers for the sake of the gospel. We pray that this message is a blessing. Friends, the scripture tonight that we're going to read is Philippians 4, verses 4 to 9. And it says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Great. Thanks, Dylan and Kath. Friends, welcome. Uh, Let me extend my additional welcome to you all, especially if it's your first time. I actually don't know how we're going to orchestrate the mechanism by which those who are new uh, identify themselves to our barbecue extraordinaire, but I will say this, just identify yourself to those serving the food and just say, Alex and Dylan and Kath said you can eat for free, and I'm sure they'll make that possible. If we've not met, my name's Alex. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at New Life Brisbane. And just want to say, on Thursday night, we got together as a team of volunteers, about 80 people in the room, kids included, just up on level one, the office space that we're blessed to have uh, just behind us here. And we celebrated all that God's done in the past year, and we looked forward to all that He might do in the year to come. And something that was shared that night was this that this time last year, we said to ourselves as a church that uh, four years ago, we were planted as a church. And what a beautiful thing for that to be the case. And then we asked the question, what would it look like for us to stop being a church plant anymore? And on Thursday night, we got to articulate actually what we think would be a really helpful practical next step to answer that question. And the answer is this, to plant a church. And so I just want to say, you've been hearing us talk a lot about more people, more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. This is not just a catchphrase. This is our missional mandate. And Pastor Dylan, who leads small groups here for a a time and will at the end of this year plant a church as one of our church planting residents, uh, him and his wife Casey and their two kids, Jonah and Elsie, will be planting a church on the north side of Brisbane. And I just want to say on the 23rd of June... There will be an information night, one of a few, coming up. So I want to put the 23rd of June on your radar. There'll be information coming out about it, videos coming out about it. And here's the thing. If you feel called and led to the north side of Brisbane to see more people more like Jesus, I just say put this on your radar as a place to which you can go, not just to be informed, but actually empowered to join us in the mission that God's given us. And if you feel called here to Brisbane City, then I just say, awesome, we're all missionaries together. Whether you're in Moreton Bay region or here in the city, 
what it looked like for each of us just to continue in that identity of more people, more like Jesus. Second thing real quick is if you're a male, if you're a man, uh, every first Monday of the month, we get together a bunch of guys just up on level one and we pray together. Um, and so at 6, 10 a.m. tomorrow, there'll be good coffee on and uh, myself will be there. Um, a few elders will be there and we're just gonna pray together. And so if you'd like to join us, half an hour of power, I would love to see you there. It's one of my favorite spaces. Uh, one time there was a guy who was just staring down, um, not staring down, gosh. Um, <laughs> There was a guy who was just about to have his first baby. And we prayed through a whole host of things. Gosh. Uh, maybe I should pray. Maybe I should pray. That could be helpful. Him and his wife were about to have their first bub. And see what we did? We put him in the middle. And we all laid hands on him. And we prayed for him into this next season. And I just say, all guys have needs. In fact, everyone in church has needs. And we as a leadership team are right now thinking through ways in which we can open up more prayer spaces for us as a church just to cultivate that posture before God. So let me do that right now and then we'll jump into the scriptures. Lord, thank you so much. Father, I can preach one sermon tonight, but you've got a myriad of messages to meet all of us where we're at. And so Father, I pray, sure help me, but more than that, Lord, would you open our ears, open our heart, purify our mind as we come before your scriptures and would we not just learn new things Lord but actually be transformed Lord I pray for freedom tonight for us to respond to you how you lead us to for us to walk with you so we pray again come Holy Spirit in Jesus name Amen tonight's passage is literally my favourite passage of scripture and the risk is therefore that I say way too much so let's get into it. Got a question. When was the last time you were anxious? When was the last time you were anxious? For me, it was Wednesday night, 9.30 p.m. You'll see a little photo on the screen behind me. And you might be thinking, you might be thinking a sports illustration. What does Alex have to do with sports? And I just say, actually, quite a bit, thank you very much. Me and sports have a great relationship. But it was the 70th minute. And I think it was Steve Crichton just went over the try line, making it 18 to the Blues. Oh, interesting. And 16 to Queensland. Any Queenslanders in the room? Yeah, awesome, awesome. Good night, eh? And everyone's thinking, right? 18 verse 16, what's the Queensland team going to do? And then things got worse because old mate got sent off, got sin binned, terrible call by the referee. Now we're from a team of 13 down to 12. And so what do the commentators start doing? They start panicking, but then they start spruiking all their Queensland mythology. You know what I'm talking about? They're just like, no one can do this, but if anyone can, Queensland. <laughs> it's the spirit. It's the team. There's a legacy. It's a tradition. And then luckily, my anxiety gave way to delight when we actually won the game and we came out on top and obliterated the Blues. Beautiful, beautiful time. That was the last time I was anxious. Another season we find ourselves in at the moment, sort of a more anxious season, I would say, is because of this little guy on the screen. His name's Jack. And if anyone in the room has ever raised a puppy before, you will know that the first four months, they're sort of docile and sweet. Sure, they bite a bit and they've got sharp teeth, but like, it's okay. But then they go through this transition and they get into teenagerhood. You'll see a meme behind me on the screen. And this is our season right now. Jack is seven months old 
and he has brought more stress to our lives than we care to admit in the right circles. It's a hard job raising a puppy. We're in a season of anxiety right now. But even more than that, I actually remember the first time I had a panic attack. It's 2012. This one's more serious. Um, I was about to preach my first sermon as a chaplain at the high school from which I graduated. No one had ever taught me how to preach. And it was the night before, it was a Tuesday night, and I was due to preach the next morning in chapel. Um, I, remember, I actually think the first sermon I really ever preached was when I was in high school. I think I recycled Rob Bell's uh, tour talk called Everything is Spiritual. Anyone remember that? Yeah, good times. Everyone thought I was super weird. <laughs> but I'm getting ready to preach. I have no idea what I'm going to say. And I find myself at Kippering Shops on Redcliffe Peninsula in Best and Less, probably shopping for mango boardies. If you know, you know. <laughs> And I just shut down. And it's like I felt completely responsible for everything and completely powerless all at the same time. Started catastrophizing. I've used this analogy before, but I connected one thought to another, to another, to another, and I thought that if I failed the next day, then my whole life would be ruined. And it's kind of like letting out the kite. And the more thoughts you connect to one another, the longer the string of the kite gets and the more chaotic it blows around in the wind. And I just freaked out. And I turned to my mum. I think we're in the bond section. And I just say, mum, I've got to go. She had no context and I had no explanation. But I felt so claustrophobic. I drove home, sat by the water in Woody Point, screamed in my car. And I was like, what's happening in my body? It was my last panic attack. There might be more. But it makes us ask this question. When were you last anxious? And what did you do with it? This week, I've been researching a bit about anxiety, and um, one thing I've discovered is it's actually really hard to define, because not, not all anxiety is bad. But we live in what you might call an anxiety epidemic. I think the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, they estimate that one in four Australians will go through uh, clinically diagnosed anxiety disorder in their life. So that's 25% of all Australians. So you take from about 25.9 million Australians, you bear that out, that's like 6.5 million Australians that will experience anxiety in their life. Or two people for every row in this church. There's anxious people in this room. You're not alone. Uh, something that sociologists have documented more recently is something called the Sunday Scaries. Uh, and LinkedIn, years ago, estimated that you experience the Sunday Scaries at 3.58 p.m. every single Sunday when you stare down the barrel of a new work week and just think, I don't know if I can face it again. Come to church, she says. <laughs> That's actually a good answer, yeah. Maybe you experienced that feeling just before though, literally about 20 minutes ago, Sunday scaries. Many people will experience anxiety in their life, but it's really hard to define. Um, I was reading an article by The Atlantic this week. Don't worry, we'll jump into the scriptures in a moment, but you'll see what I'm doing in a second. I was reading an article by The Atlantic and they sort of asked the question, what's the difference between anxiety, worry and stress? Because when you ask that question, you realize that not all stimulants that make us scared are actually bad. See, stress is a really good thing. Stress is the kind of external stimuli that affects your body in such a way that you are caused to go to action. So right now, some of you have a deadline at work. That deadline, although it can make you anxious, maybe for some of us in a diluted sense, it's just making us stressed, which is a good thing, because it'll lead you to actually take steps to get that deadline sorted, submit the paper, get the profile in, get the briefing done. Awesome, stress is a good thing. 
Worry, on the other hand, if stress is physiological or physical, worry is purely mental. And worry is when you take a thought and you keep dwelling on that thought time and time again, moment after moment. But here's what the article said. It quoted from a, um, a medical professor from Harvard Medical School. And she said this. She said that anxiety is when stress gets into bed with worry. And so you graduate from what is a helpful stress to perhaps an unhelpful worry up to what is anxiety. Um, in other words, anxiety is, but it isn't stress and worry. It's got its own thing. And here's what I've discovered in my time. I'm not a medical professional, so I'll stay in my own lane this evening. I'm a pastor. But here's my discovery of how we might define anxiety helpfully. Because the way you define anxiety will determine what you expect Paul to be talking towards as he addresses us in this passage, which is really crucial. You see behind me the screen, um, three helpful little titles. There's the clinical definition of anxiety. Many of you will know, especially if you've got a psych background, that the tool, the Bible for the psychological world is called the DSM, the Diagnostic Manual. And uh, it's gone through a number of iterations, started in 1952, and its most recent iteration is uh, in uh, DSM-5-TR. But it describes anxiety like this. It describes anxiety as excessive worry and apprehensive expectations occurring more days than not for at least six months about a number of events or activities such as work or school performance. That's the clinical definition. And people in this room would have received that as an explainer for what they're going through in life. Some of us here might have clinical diagnoses of anxiety. You're not alone. Second definition would be this, something a more general kind of thing. Uh, in the 1950s, there was a guy named W.H. Alden, and he wrote the biggest poem sort of ever up to that point, and it's called The Age of Anxiety. And a beautiful meditation on how since the industrial era and progress, we've now become a society that worries about a whole host of extra things, even though life gets easier. More recently, Arcade Fire, sort of an alternative indie band. Yeah, we're going all around this evening, right? An alternative indie band, they put it into a song, and their lyrics said it like this. It's the age of doubt, and our doubt will figure it out. Is it you or me? The age of anxiety. Fight the fever with TV. In the age where nobody sleeps and the pills do nothing for me. In the age of anxiety. Remember years ago, listening to a podcast called This Cultural Moment with Mark Sayers and John Mark Comer. And John Mark, not John Mark, Mark Sayers had this beautiful description of our modern world. He said, right now, because of the freneticism of life, the pace of our business world, and all the ingredients that make up modern industrial West, there's a background hum of anxiety to all of our lives. You don't need to be clinically diagnosed to have anxiety, to experience anxiety in any general way. I actually think not just a few of us here are diagnosed that way. A lot of us experience anxiety on the daily because our phone in our pocket can just go off immediately and we're on the edge of our seat, waiting for good news or bad news, waiting to see what might take place. There's clinical anxiety, there's general anxiety, and then there's what I want to call existential anxiety. This is my own thing, but it's simply this, the kind of questions that keep you up at night. Where am I going? Why am I here? Now, when Paul writes this letter, here's what Paul doesn't have. He doesn't have the DSM-5. That in other words, Paul doesn't have a def definition of clinically diagnosable anxiety, so we need to be really, really careful when we think about how he addresses anxiety in this text. Because we can over-spiritualize things, or under-spiritualize things. And right now our world is crying out for a meaningful way to cultivate a life of non-anxiety 
that's not over-spiritual or anti-spiritual. And I wanna try and chart that course for us this evening. But the thing that put me across this radar, I was reading another article this week, last quote from a news article by The Guardian. Scott, I think Scott Stossel is his name. And he wrote a book called My Age of Anxiety. And I've got a long quote here and just bear with me for a second and then we'll get really practical for the rest of the sermon. But he's got this quote that sort of articulates where we've gotten to as a society in thinking about anxiety. And he says it way better than I ever could. Here's the long quote. He's writing in the Atlantic, it's an excerpt from his book. And in it, he reflects on the nature of anxiety, the causes of anxiety. And in this bewilderment, as he looks back over his life, when he was two, he was diagnosed with sort of some kind of anxiety. When he was 10, he was admitted to a psychiatric ward. And all of his life had been pushed between psychologists and psychiatrists and practitioners and philosophers and pastors and priests. And he just gets so bewildered and says, who's going to fix me? How am I going to deal with this? And here's the words that he said. He said it like this. The psychological field remains riven by disputes over what causes anxiety and how to treat it. The pharmacists and psychiatrists I've consulted tell me that drugs are a treatment for my anxiety, but the cognitive behavioral therapists I've consulted sometimes tell me that drugs are partly a cause of it. Is anxiety a medical illness or is it a philosophical problem? Is it a psychological problem or is it a spiritual condition? Or finally, is it, as W.H. Auden has said, a cultural condition, a function of the times we live in and the structure of our society? Here's his answer. The truth is that anxiety is at once a function of biology and philosophy, body and mind, instinct and reason, personality and culture. Even as anxiety is experienced at a spiritual and psychological level, it's still scientifically measurable at the molecular level and the psychological level. It's produced by nature and it's produced by nurture. It's a psychological phenomenon and a sociological phenomenon. In computer terms, it's both a hardware problem. In other words, I'm wired badly and a software problem. In other words, I run faulty logic programs that make me think anxious thoughts. In other words, this thing is complex. Don't oversimplify it. Whether you're speaking as a pastor with theology or a psychologist with modern medicine, let's not oversimplify this. And let's cultivate freedom as the people of God along the way. So here's the two things we want to avoid. We want to avoid a hyper-spirituality. Thanks, James which just says this, I just need to go and have faith and pray about it. If you've got anxiety, <laughs> the thing to avoid is just saying, I just need to go pray about it. And if I have enough faith, God will heal me. But on the other end of the spectrum, we wanna, we wanna avoid functional atheism, which is I just need to see a doctor. See, the beauty of the Christian story is it makes sense of God's miraculous power and modern medicine all at the same time. So we shouldn't shame people for actually having to take pills to address their anxiety or experience cognitive behavioral therapy by seeing a psychologist, while at the same time being the kind of community that can freely, as we'll finish our service this afternoon, come forward to receive God in prayer, right? And so here's the aim that I've got for our time with the three points I wanna make, because I'm a good Baptist pastor at heart. The three, I want us to experience freedom. And some of us in this room will finally feel unlocked and unhinged in such a way that they think, maybe I should go see the doctor this week. Maybe I will get a mental health plan. And others of us, all at the same time, will be like, I've actually not asked God to heal me in this area. And you'll come forward for prayer. And all of us together will experience a dissolution of shame and an increase of freedom as together we walk forward. So here's my three points to cultivate a life of non-anxiety. 
pray always, praise regardless, and ponder the good. If you're taking notes, let's get into it. Pray always. Paul says this, verse six, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Here, Paul paints a picture that the Christian life, indeed any life, can be lived between concern and contentment, anxiety and worry. And the question that's begged is, how do I move from one to the other? So many worldviews, so many people's way of life can be explained by their answer to that question. I was listening to another philosopher this week, Alain de Botton. He's not a Christian, but a lot of the stuff he says I think is really good. And he said, most people will orbit their lives around trying to deal with their anxiety by plugging in different experiences or relationships or ideas of success that if they get to the other side of this thing, everything will be okay. This is what modern marketing drives itself off. So they give you a picture of someone relaxing in a banana chair on the beach side, drinking a pina colada. And you think that if I just had that, the anxiety I now feel will get gone. But he says so helpfully that the downside about this mythology is that it never works. And when you finally get what you think will help you, you bring yourself with you. He made this point in a book called The Art of Travel. And his major point is that actually, no matter what you think will fix you, the you that needs fixing will always be brought to the thing that you think will fix you. So what will deliver you from that? Every worldview has an answer to that question. Here's Paul's prayer. That there is a God in heaven who is perpetually available to you. Like he's right here, right now. When you wake up, he's there. When you go to sleep, he's there. And the answer, the means by which you go from concern to contentment, from anxiety to peace, is to not let your prayers hit the ceiling of self-sufficiency, but actually be directed to your Father in heaven. That's what Charles Spurgeon said. So here's another way to say it. D.A. Carson, New Testament scholar, he said, the way to be anxious about nothing is to be prayerful about everything. So why does this work? Another image on the screen. If it's not a table, it'll be some arrows. You know what I'm saying? When you're anxious, you direct your thoughts towards circumstances and that's completely horizontal. So you think about the deadline you've got coming up. You think about the relationship you can't control. You think about the things in your life that are hemming you in from the right, the left, the front and the back. And here's what someone said that's really helpful once. Where you invest your time, you invest your most invaluable resource. And the way that you invest your time is by giving your attention to something. Everything that you give your attention to, it gets magnified in your mind. So here's what happens when you look out across the horizontal space that we call two-dimensional reality without God. You invest with significance all the things that can cause you anxiety. And slowly you go from worrying about them to them now controlling you. Why? Horizontal. Purely looking at all the things that are around us. Now there's something meaningful about that. It's like, yeah, there's a real deadline coming up. You've got to think about it, have a plan. But the downside is, is that if you invest your time and your attention, you magnify it to a place that it should never be. And you end up not just addressing it helpfully with a plan and a program or a means by which you can meet the deadline, you actually end up living subject to it. And it starts to control and constrain you. Why? Because you directed your attention, your time, your best resource toward horizontal things. Now the antidote therefore is not to not like horizontal things. We'll see that in point number two. The antidote is to come back to them afresh with a new vertical relationship given to you by God. That in other words, the reason prayer works is because it directs our attention, invests our time, gives all of our biggest, best resource over to the one who is good, who loves us, who wants to be the object of our attention and our affection. 
Last year, Kath and I got to spend some time in Tasmania, and everyone said when we drove there, they said, you need to drive up Mount Wellington. It's amazing. And I remember thinking, Mount Wellington? We've got a mountain in Brisbane. It's called Mount Kutha. And I'd say it's a bit of a hill, unless I just rode up it, and then it's, that's a mountain. You know what I mean? But we went there. We drove up Mount Wellington. And the higher we got, the more we, think, we thought, goodness me, this is incredible. And you get to the top, and you'll see a picture behind me. And you see just this incredible vista. And the truism became true for us, that the higher you get, the more things shrink. And I think the same is true for God. When you come to God in prayer, you ascend the mountain. And when you're at the mountain, everything else has perspective. And so it doesn't mean you need not worry, nor be attached to the things of this world in an unhelpful way. It just means you've got perspective for them so you can see them for what they are. And here's the good news, see them for what they're not. Freedom. You get freedom when you pray always. You get freedom when you ascend to God in prayer. That doesn't mean that you can't love things of this world. It means that you come to them afresh. When we attach ourselves to God as the primary carer in our lives, we actually make it such that all the things in this world are just diluted, just that touch in a way that we can manage them. I actually think when you come to God in prayer, direct your eyes heavenward, go vertical with your attention. It actually helps you take an audit of all the things you fool yourself that you can control in this life. Right? Like people will say all the time, one of the best cures to anxiety, not cures, but like sort of a generalized anxiety, is just to hand over to, to, to God and to others what you can't control. If you don't have a flourishing prayer life, you won't know what those are. You just won't. We fool ourselves all the time that we can worry about something so it'll fix itself. It won't. We, we make all these scenarios up, like if I call that person, they're gonna react this way, so we don't make the call. We create a scenario in our head that are way bigger than it needs to be, and if we just said, hey God, I've got to make this call. I can't not make it. I hope it goes okay. You actually see what becomes true. And if it does go bad, you deal with it. If it doesn't go bad, that's a win-win. Praise the Lord. If you've got a flourishing prayer life, you'll be able to relinquish control of things you actually never had control over in the first place. We need to ascend to God in prayer. We need to pray always. Number two, we need to praise regardless. Verse four says this, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Here's what a lot of people have discovered, particularly on the other side of COVID. Gratitude has profound power to cultivate joy and dilute anxiety. Gratitude has profound power to cultivate joy and dilute anxiety. There's a study done by the Journal of Positive Psychology in 2018. Four psychologists randomly split a sample of 153 human subjects into groups that were assigned to either remember something they were grateful for or think about something unrelated. And those that remembered grateful things were all, all of them were more joyous and happy and hopeful. An actual study done, not by Christians, to try and understand the way in which gratitude as a practice in life actually cultivates something. Which means what Paul said in, in ancient Rome to a church in Philippi actually resonates with the kinds of things that secular psychologists are discovering today. Beautiful witness of Christian truth, beautiful power contained in the scriptures. Now here's the thing. I think it's not that a lot of people don't have things to be grateful for, it's that we don't have anyone to be grateful to. And so here's what happens. You get a lot of people, particularly with new age spirituality, coming and assigning sort of personality to the universe. This became clear to me a few years ago when I downloaded Chris Hemsworth's Center app clearly working for me. It's his fitness app, but in it, he does, he's got three things for you. Recipes, workouts, exhibit B, 
and meditation. And one of the things that a lot of these practices and programs will invite you to do is practice gratitude, but in saying thank you, you need to ascribe agency to something. And so what a lot of people therefore do is they say, the universe has been good to me. And my question is, where did that become possible to say? Like the universe is quite impersonal in a sense. Now there'd be some theologian, Christian, that comes along and tries to say something a bit more nuanced and that's good and fine too, I'm for it. But like there's a mechanistic natural law happening out there regardless of how we feel, regardless of whether we think it's got a personality. And I just say they're borrowing from Christian tradition to assign something to the universe that should ultimately be assigned to God. So let me put it this way. C.S. Lewis had a thought experiment. He said that all humans are like a man that walked into a shed, a kid that walked into a dark wooden shed. And as they find themselves in this shed, it's a dark room, but all the sort of suspended dust particles are hanging in the air and this sun starts to beam through. And the kid thinks, goodness me, these sunbeams are beautiful. The kid makes a mistake because what's really beautiful is the thing which gives them their essence in the first place, which is the sun outside the shed. And he said, the task of every faithful Christian is to take the sunbeams and trace them all the way back up to the sun. That in other words, let me put it this way, the task of every Christian is to take the beautiful things of this world and not see them as ends in themselves, but as good gifts from a good Father in heaven that loves us. Think about that. In other words, let me drill down deeper, it's to be grateful. And the opposite of gratefulness is not thanklessness, it's entitlement. It's living our lives with our eyes closed, just being like, I earned this, I did this, this is all in the sweat of my brow. No, everything is gift, everything is grace. And to live our lives with a posture of gratefulness and thankfulness is just to say, goodness me, I've not earned this. And the kind of thing that does to your heart over time is profound. But we have to go deeper, because here Paul is not just, Paul's not hanging on a banana chair in the Bahamas with a pina colada. He's not, singing in a comf- he's not sitting in a comfy armchair with like a kinfolk magazine and a glasshouse candle. He's in prison. And Kath and I got to visit what many people think is the prison that Paul was in. And we were struck by three things. It was dark, it was smelly, and it was small. And so in that space, Paul says, you can rejoice always. In fact, the order is so important. He says, you can pray, but sure, rejoice. Verse four, he says it twice, rejoice, give thanks, praise. And then he qualifies the kind of prayer he invites them to do by saying with thankfulness in verse six. The order is important. The repetition is important. Why? Because Paul is not inviting us just to be grateful in sort of this really comfortable sense. He's inviting us to preach an anthem to our hearts. He's in prison. Now, Paul's a faithful Jew. He would have known Psalm 43, verse five, which says this, hear these words. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my saviour and my God, for I will yet praise him, my saviour and my God. I'll say it again, I will yet praise God. It's an anthem. It's a means by which to preach to our soul. Paul knows that actually one of the key ways we preach to our soul, bring our heart along with our head, is to declare to it truth that we've taken for granted for so long. So he says rejoice. I'll say it again, rejoice. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's 1 Thessalonians. This beautiful invitation not to just recline in an armchair and be like, life's sweet. God, thank you for this. Thank you, universe. But actually to, to like grit our teeth. God, thank you, there's always something to be thankful for. Thank you, Lord. I'll give you some examples. Right now, a lot of us are stressed because of a relationship. Here's how you can give thanks for that right now. You can say, God, I thank you that I'm so close with someone that actually any tension in our relationship causes me to feel this way. You can say thanks for that. Some of us have lost people recently. And the idea of saying thanks for that feels weird, but here's what would make that possible. 
you'd say to God the same words that Alfred Lord Tennyson said, that it's better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all. And so you can say, God, thank you that I was so close with someone that when they left, it hurt. Right? Because it's better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all. Or you might have people in your world right now that don't know Jesus, and the very possibility of them spending eternity without him actually strikes your heart, causes you to fear, makes you anxious. That should remind you of the beauty of the salvation you received by grace through faith. But also, God, thank you that you listen to my prayers and that as I pray for them, you actually might work. You can pray in all things. And here's what C.S. Lewis would say. Last quote from Lewis, I promise. He says, We shall not be able to adore God on the highest occasion if we've not learned any habit of doing so on the lowest. So we can pray always. We can praise regardless. And lastly, we can ponder the good. And as I walk through this, just love the band to come up. Ponder the good. Verse 8 says this. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now, here's what Paul's doing. In that culture, it was really popular for Greeks and Romans to write lists of moral virtues that they could push their culture to aspire towards. Things like fortitude, piety, uh, not mercy. That was not a Roman thing, but it just came to my mind. Fortitude, piety. Uh, I can't think of any more, but that's all right. Courage, justice. And in pointing their society toward these virtues, they'd say that the key way to cultivate the good life would be to focus your mind on the good things. So here's what Paul is doing. He's borrowing from that tradition and inserting the kind of things that should prompt our mind to think, now what are the virtuous things? And indeed as Christians, who is the virtuous one? And it's a really roundabout and long-winded way for Paul really just to say, think about Jesus. Now that's gonna sound like I'm selling you short, but that is really the end result of this application. Think about Jesus. Jesus is the good one. Jesus is good news, which tells us something about Christianity. A lot of people, when they're anxious, they think, I just don't wanna talk about that anymore. I don't wanna think about that anymore. That's causing me too much stress. And they play the emu, bury their head in the sand, and they bracket out all the kinds of things that would cause them stress. I'm cutting myself off from that person, they're toxic. I'm walking away from that thought, it's unhelpful. In the Christian story, it's a bit different. That you grow in non-anxiety in the Christian story, not by thinking less, but by actually thinking more. By reflecting on Jesus, what He's done for you, who He is to you, what He will do for the world. I mentioned before that there's an existential kind of anxiety that keeps you up at night. Why am I here? Where am I going? What's it all for? And Paul would answer it for us here. He'd say, actually, if you think of the good one, you've got an answer to that question. You're here to know Jesus. If you're in Him, you are going to spend eternity with Him. There's a bunch of horizontal worries that plague our lives. But if you get that vertical thing right, it'll completely dilute them. So what does this mean? Well, it brings us full circle because at the start of the passage, Paul says something like this, the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. But at the end of the passage, he says this, the God of peace will come to you. And I don't wanna say it like this, that you actually can't get the peace of God from the God of peace unless you're at peace with God. 
that peace is not something God gives over to us and then removes Himself. Peace is Him. He is our peace. Which is why when Jesus was with His disciples, He said to them at the very end, He said, my peace I give to you. And then He went to give Himself for them on the cross that they might be reconciled to God by grace through faith. It's the Christian story. If you ponder that, step one. But if you're wrapped up in that, And so what I wanna do is come full circle. I wanna say, yeah, the way that we can cultivate non-anxiety, sure. Pray always, praise regardless, and ponder the good. But I wanna invite us actually to receive the peace of God by coming into relationship with Jesus Christ. So as I do that, why don't you stand and pray together. We're gonna have a team of people that come and they're gonna be available for prayer. But before we do that, I just want to invite all of us. If you've not known peace, if you've not known God, maybe in this moment you want to come into a relationship with Him. So can I invite each of us in the room just to close our eyes? And I want to speak to the person in the room who's thinking, I didn't expect to feel this way in church today. This might be more true than I originally endeavoured. I want to ask that you would open your heart right now and entertain the possibility that what you're after is not a dose of tranquility but actually the presence of a person who's been pursuing you all along. And if that's you, I just want you to raise your hand where you are. We'd love to pray with you. So if that's you, just raise your hand nice and high and we're going to pray together. Just leave the space open just for a touch longer. We do this every week because we think every week it's possible for people to meet their Heavenly Father. If that's you, just raise your hand wherever you are. Nice and high. Wonderful. Wonderful. Even if there are people who haven't raised their hand, but you feel in your heart that you want to step back into a relationship with God, we'd love to just pray as a community together so you get a sense of the kind of thing that would look like. And simply saying, God, sorry, thank you, and please. So as a church, why don't we repeat after me and we'll pray together with one voice. God, thank you for your peace. Sorry for trying to find it in a bunch of other places. Please give me your peace. Please give me your own self. be my Saviour and Lord. Amen. Amen. Friends, I'd love to invite us. I said before that my hope is that what tonight cultivates is freedom. And so there's going to be a prayer team up the front. And if you want prayer for anything, I said at the start too that I'm going to preach a sermon, but you could hear your own message because that's what the Spirit does. And So whatever God's prompted in your heart, just come and receive prayer. 
There'll be a team on my right and left, a team up the back and a team up on the mezzanine floor, all wearing white lanyards prepared to pray with you. And I just say, if this is an area that you've been like, oh, maybe I should come forward. Come forward or go back. Receive prayer. This is one of the most beautiful spaces within which to get vulnerable before God and our church family. Whether you're young or old, whether you're new to Christianity or seasoned, whether you're open to the charismatic moves of the Spirit or not, this is a space for you. A space where you can respond to God, not privately, but personally in the context of people who love you and have your back. And so I just say, maybe it's your first time tonight that you receive a touch from God in prayer with those who love you. Awesome. And for the rest of us, what would freedom look like as we worship? So let's worship together. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you'd like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray that you have a great week. Be blessed.